Turning your Bibles to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We've been working through the Psalms this summer and been seeing all kinds of different Psalms. And Psalm 133 is what is called a wisdom Psalm, which really teaches us to uh, um, how to live with one another as the people of God. And so we come to this great, very brief Psalm, but definitely powerful uh, for our lives and for the way that we dwell amongst one another. Psalm 133, this is the word of the living God. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Life forever. As you notice the heading there, it says that it's a psalm of David. It's a song of ascents. There are 15 of these songs of ascents in the psalms. Uh, Psalms 120 to 134 are what are called songs of ascents. And they are referred to also as pilgrim psalms, including Psalm 133, because of the fact that During the three major uh, annual Jewish feasts of Passover, a feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles, worshipers would flock from all over Palestine and outside of Palestine to travel to Jerusalem for these feasts and worship God. And Jerusalem, their destination, as you know, is over 2,800 feet above sea level. And so pilgrims traveling into the city to worship had to ascend to Jerusalem. And these songs of ascent were believed to be sung by pilgrims as they, as they made their way up to worship at the capital city of the kingdom of, of Jerusalem. Four of these songs of ascent are authored by David. And this particular one here is focused on unity, the super important theme of Unity, And I had a more elaborate illustration at the beginning for you guys, which I won't get into. But, you know, safe to say, unity is hard to come by. Amen? Very difficult to come by. Maybe you've been at churches over the course of your Christian walk. Maybe you've been at one church, Calvary Bible Church, for your whole life. But maybe you have a background where you've been at different churches over the course of your life where you've experienced both An example of a church that was unified, where fellowship was sweet, but also perhaps a church where there was a lot of disunity and dissension and discord. I came to live in the United States at the age of eight years old from Mexico. And the first church that I was taken to by an aunt and uncle was a wonderful little church, a very sweet and loving church in East Los Angeles. We used to tra- uh, travel from West L.A. about 30 to 45 minutes to East L.A. Uh, to attend this little church. And, you know, I have so many fond memories of that little church. The worship on Sunday mornings was just so sweet and so exuberant was the singing. There was only a guy up there with a guitar, but the people loved to sing together. It was a mixed congregation of Caucasian people and mostly Hispanics, and they loved to worship the Lord. Rarely did we ever leave to go back home on Sundays from that area because people would always invite us over. We would always be in fellowship with other people, and we would just have a great time. People loved to be together at this church. 
They love to practice hospitality. They, they love to spend time together and share about life and all of that and fellowship and commune together about what the Lord was teaching them. And, of course, the kids got to hang out together and play and all of that. And then we went back to Sunday evening service and we would worship together again from 6 o'clock to 7.30 p.m. And then we'd stick around afterward for pan dulces, Mexican sweet bread and coffee and hot chocolate and all of that. I love that place, especially for the goodies, right? I have sweet memories of that congregation, the first part of my experience there. But the last two years were very tumultuous times. There was a factious group that arose, beginning with with a couple of families from within that church. And eventually these families that had complaints of a peripheral secondary nature about the church got a, a hearing with a couple of the elders. There were five elders at the time at that church, and two of these elders basically began to champion the cause of these few people in the church who were prominent people. And then eventually a couple of these elders decided that they were going to go after the head pastor of the church a very sweet man who now, even now, he's ministering in Washington as a missionary. He's been in ministry 40-plus years ministering to the Lord. And so they decided to go after this individual. And I just remember during those, those six months of difficulties before the church split, how membership meetings, it was a congregational-led church, so members would come in for these long membership meetings, and people began to scream at each other and yell at each other. And there was so much bitterness and resentment where members were getting up. And I, I, underst- I understood little as a, as a young boy of what the big deal was. But some things were such a big deal that, that it invited fleshliness on the part of these individuals in a membership meeting, even before their very families sitting there. It was a very, very difficult time. Eventually, to make the long story short, the church was split Half of the church, more than half of the church, ended up leaving over a six-month period of time. And eventually, within a couple of years of when things began to go south there, the church disbanded altogether. It was a very, very sad time and a very sad thing for me to behold this as a young kid. That the people who I loved, the people that I had grown to cherish and treasure, the people that I had fond memories of were doing this and had caused the disbanding of the church that I loved even as a young boy. And I was not a Christian at the time. I didn't understand all the implications of what was going on. But there were things that were of secondary nature. Now I realize, beloved, that that's an extreme case of disunity in a church. That doesn't always happen in every church. But that is what sin does, right? Sin fractures unity. Sin disrupts the unity that Christ has established. And this is why Scripture speaks so much about the the importance of believers, of Christians, preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Jesus prayed for unity amongst God's people in the upper room in John 17. If you remember, he says, Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. Our unity reflects the triune God on earth. And Jesus prayed for that for his present and future disciples in the upper room discourse. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 warned and exhorted his beloved Corinthian church that he had spent time with against factions and divisions in the church, against rivalries of, of, of trumping individuals in the church. At the time it was Cephas or Peter and Apollos and Paul himself. Even Jesus was one of the options for the Corinthians of following after Jesus. And Paul says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
And he goes on to talk about the fact that the focus is Jesus and the cross of Christ, not any single individual in the church that we should be creating groups and categories under, right? Following. It's about Christ being exalted. And so we need to be so careful in the church. We can create conflict and disunity by our sheer disagreements, differences of opinions in the church, even interrelational problems between individuals or families can become sources of division in the church. And that is sad to see, isn't it? That the unity that Christ has established, we can fracture it by not uh, fleshing out a functional unity, the way that we live together in peace and fellowship and harmony together. We can impact that. We can certainly never break what Jesus has already established. But unity can certainly be fractured. Truly, beloved, genuine, heartful unity in the church is hard to come by, right? But how precious and pleasant and exhilarating and all kinds of other words that we can come up with when people fellowship and are unified in Christ. Amen? And that's what we want to experience even as a church. And so that's this unity is what David is talking about here in Psalm 133. David is the psalmist. And what he's doing here in Psalm 133 is he, he is celebrating the beauty of unity amongst God's people. He is celebrating the, the exhilarating beauty of the unity that God's people share. And as he does so here in Psalm 133, I want us briefly to see two reasons for why we as God's people should be diligent to preserve the unity that Christ has established if we are Christians. If we are believers, if you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus from the heart, you're a disciple, a follower of Christ, we are one. And we are called to preserve that oneness in the way that we live and the way that we interact amongst one another. So what are two reasons, as we look at David celebrating the beauty of unity here in Psalm 133, what are two reasons for being diligent to preserve this unity? Notice, first of all, in verse 1, that unity is delightful. Unity is delightful. You know, we often think that God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy who doesn't like pleasure, who doesn't uh, want his people to, uh, to be joyful, to be people who are delighting in life or delighted in life. But what we find here is that, is that David says that God wants his people to experience delight, and that delight happens when we function in unity together. Notice verse 1, Behold, here is something David says that you need to pay attention to. Only two Psalms begin this way. Psalm 134 verse 1 begins with, Behold, here is something that you need to pay attention to, says David. Look at this. What? How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. He says, how good, how excellent, how beneficial, how right, and how pleasant how lovely, how attractive, how sweet, how soothing it is. That's what he's getting at here. He uses both of these words, good and pleasant, to speak of the, of the precious nature of unity, of the delightfulness of unity. You know, there are some things in life that are good, but not necessarily pleasant. And there are some things in life that are pleasant, but not necessarily good or right. He says unity is both good and pleasant. It is delightful. It is pleasurable. It is precious. You know, when we experience this wonderful delight, 
and joy of unity when we spend time together. When we invite one another into our homes. When Christians dwell together, beloved, that is when we experience this kind of delight, right? We just had a few days ago a family over our house. And it was so awesome to spend time with this couple and to hear about their life journey and their background and how the Lord saved them despite their background and the difficulties that they had experienced and then how the Lord brought them together and then about their dreams and their hopes into the future and some of their goals and their aspirations. And afterward, Andrea and I were just exhilarated thinking, man, that is awesome. What did you think of the time? It was just so delightful. It was so pleasurable. These were amazing, amazing people. Have you experienced that? As you invite people into your home, as you spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ, have you experienced the pleasure, the joy, the delight of being amongst brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm sure you have. David had experienced this. In fact, the reason why David delights in such unity is because it's hard to come by. David himself had experienced personally both the blessing of unity and the burden of this unity. Prior to Saul dying, David understood everything about disunity. But then after Saul, he takes over the kingdom and he experienced amazing unity during the height of his reign. Only then to sin later on with Bathsheba. And if you remember, everything went south from there. And David experienced disunity in the kingdom like never, ever before. He could speak from experience about the joy of unity and yet the burden of disunity and discord and dissension. And think about the masses of these pilgrims. According to this psalm, in the historical context of this psalm, these masses of pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem at the time, traveling for worship, and on the way, traveling with their families, they would, you know, it's wonderful to travel as families to long distances, right? But some of you who have big families, especially, you know that for all the joys, when the kids are little, especially, there's a lot of potential for disagreement and discord, right? So it's both an enjoyable thing and at the same time difficult. Well, some of these pilgrims, think about it, they they had large families, and here they are traveling to Jerusalem. There would be ample opportunity for disagreement, conflict, and dissension. On top of that, think of all of these pilgrims from all kinds of different tribes, different family clans, if you will, different regions of Palestine or outside of Palestine, with different cultures and customs themselves, different backgrounds and upbringings, social standing. There was ample opportunity for these pilgrims, beloved, to be in conflict and for dissension to happen amongst these pilgrims. And yet, despite their differences... The greater purpose for why they were traveling to Jerusalem was what? The worship of Yahweh, right? There was a greater purpose for why they were traveling to Jerusalem, to worship the Lord. They were coming to celebrate their common heritage as the people of God, as those who had been saved from Egypt and were the objects of God's covenant love. And so that was their greater purpose. And they understood that they were fellow worshipers of the one true God. In fact, this psalm and the Psalms of Ascent are meant to be sung as a reminder for these people of the common bond and common purpose that they shared as the people of the one true God. And isn't this true for us too, beloved? Isn't it true for us that though we are so different, we remember that our identity is rooted in who we are in Christ? In a greater purpose. 
Our identity is who in, is, is located in who, and rooted in who I am in Jesus as a believer. If I am a Christian, who I am in Christ defines me. Not my differences with other people. Not whether I am single or married. That is not what ultimately defines me. Not my background or upbringing. Not my economic bracket where I fall, poor, middle class, or rich, according to society's standards. Not my upbringing, whether I was raised in a very moral home or in a very immoral location. Whether I come from a pretty strong family background or a broken home. Those are all differences that we can have. They are not meant to be things that, that, that um, cause us to, be, to, to function in disunity and discord. You may be old, you may be younger, you may be very young sitting in this congregation. You may be white, you may be black, you may be Hispanic, you may be Asian, you may be European, you may be from the Middle East. But if we are in Christ and we are one, and our identity is rooted in who we are in Jesus Christ, regardless of any of those differences you see. What defines me as a Christian is that I am a child of God, part of God's family, and I have brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, don't ever, ever, ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Ever. And don't you dare, regardless of what particular differences we can talk about, don't you dare ever, ever create a separation between you and another believer in Christ. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have one Heavenly Father, and we are all going to spend eternity together worshiping Him in a heavenly kingdom. Christ has broken down any barrier of dividing wall between ourselves and God, namely our sin, beloved. So that we have a vertical relationship with God made right. And Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 is that then on the horizontal level, the walls of separation between people of different ethnic backgrounds has been completely demolished because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the great peacemaker who has broken down any wall of separation between peoples. If we put our faith in Jesus, then we are one and we're called to function as the spiritual family of God. That's who we are. And you can do nothing to break that as a believer. Nothing, nothing, nothing will unbreak the spiritual, supernatural union that God has established between you and other believers by His Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this about Christians. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit, speaking there of this spiritual and supernatural unity and oneness created by the Spirit of God. You can't touch this. You can't touch this and separate it and break it. Jesus has done it for all believers. He is the head, we are members of His body, and we are in union with one another. Now, we can choose not to preserve that unity and live in dissension amongst one another. And some of you are living that way. Some of you have conflicts with other believers, whether in this church or outside of this church. Some of you have relationships that are fractured, that are distant, that perhaps are uncomfortable for you. 
Some of you have swept things under the rug and you rather stay away from certain individuals in the church than actually tackle things head on in a Christ-like way and make things right with other, another brother or sister in Christ. Some of you are living that way. And you know what you're doing? You are not able to experience the joy and the delight and the bliss that comes from knowing that you can be around your brothers and sisters in Christ and experience God's blessing. It's sad. Listen, if you're going to be one who preserves this type of unity and experiences this type of delight and joy around brothers and sisters in Christ, then you need to recognize that, that unity, preserving unity, takes your maximum effort, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, says Paul to the Ephesians. Two things that we learn from that text, Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3. One is this, unity, preserving unity is hard. And it takes relentless, active, purposeful, deliberate effort on our parts to fight for that unity that Jesus has established. And secondly, you know what unity will take? It will take humility on your part and on my part. To set aside our pride. To look in the mirror to see what we are doing to contribute to disunity and dissension with another brother or sister in Christ. Humility drives unity, you see. And then there's gentleness and patience and loving forbearance that is manifested because we are humbling ourselves before the Lord and before another brother or sister in Christ and seeking to reconcile that relationship. Some of us need to have some homework to do this week to really follow up and ask yourself before the Lord, Oh God, see if there be any hurtful way in me as it pertains to my relationship with fill in the blank. And if I need to follow up and tackle that issue head on, then you need to do that for the glory of God and for your good that you might experience this kind of delight and joy. I mean, don't you want God's blessing upon your life? Don't you want God's blessing upon your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? Of course we do. Of course we do. The gospel, beloved, is to shape everything that we do, especially how we live together as God's people, right? Everything that we do. And that's what Psalm 133 really ultimately is about. That we might experience God's blessing. And that is the second point here. The second reason why you and I should preserve unity in the church. First of all, because unity is delightful. Secondly, because unity brings God's blessing. Because unity brings God's blessing. And he gives two pictures here. The David, uh, that they would have understood in their day and age. That might sound a little bit odd to us. But they would have treasured these pictures here of the blessing of God upon those who preserve unity. Look at verse 2. Unity is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Oh, if 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 you're a lady in here who loves essential oils or maybe some of us men, this is your classic validation right here, right? No, 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 it isn't, all right? Not really. Don't quote. Let's delete that from the sermon later on. Just messing with you. This is not the origin of the essential oils movement, okay? Even though I enjoy my little essential oils here and there as well, as I've shared in the past. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 30, 
I don't have time to go there at this time, but in Exodus chapter 30, it speaks about this special oil that God had instructed the Israelites to make. It was an oil that was holy, like no other kind of oil. It was an oil that was sacred. It was not for mundane or common use. It was oil that was fragrant. There was a beautiful aroma that was pleasant about this particular oil. And it was an oil that was used for consecration, for setting apart the articles in the tent of meeting and the priests of God who would serve in the temple and serve the people of God. This oil would be poured out on the head of the priest. Aaron here is representative of the whole priesthood. And you can picture this as they're pouring this oil upon the, the priest who is to minister before the Lord in the temple as a mediator to the pe- for the people of God. The oil would pour, flow down his cheeks, down to his beard, down to his neck, drenching his garments or his robe. For the Israelites, this was a picture, beloved, of, of blessing, of lavish abundance of fragrant oil covering this priest. And it symbolized the abundance of blessing upon God's people. For the priest was being consecrated to do what? To mediate before God on behalf of God's people, right? And it's the same for us, says David. When we walk in unity, unity is, is a sweet-smelling aroma like this. It's sweet, it's pleasant, it's permeating like that oil that the Israelites could picture there in the sacrificial system or in the temple. He further pictures the blessing of unity in verse 3, if you notice. Unity is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Zion, there is another word for Jerusalem, as we saw last week. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. If you know anything about Mount Hermon, it's it's the highest mountain in that region of the world. Its peak peak sitting at over 9,200 feet above sea level. It's characterized by its moist air, its rain, and in the winter, its snow. Many skiers love to go there during particular months to ski at at Mount Hermon, even today. It's known by its lush greenery, even in the hot months. And for the people of God, Mount Hermon was a source of blessing. Why? Because even in Palestine, between the months of April and, and October, where there was very little rainfall, the source of dew, the source of water for vegetation and for crops and all of that was Mount Hermon. In fact, that is where the Jordan River begins and flows south to the, unto Palestine. And so the people understood that vegetation and crops and farmers were highly dependent on what flowed down from Mount Hermon for the growth and maturation of those crops and vegetation. Mount Hermon was a source of blessing, a source of God's favor. And David uses that picture and says, like the dew of Mount Hermon, which nourishes and replenishes the the land, so is unity amongst God's people. It is a life-giving blessing to God's people to walk in unity. It imparts life. Look at the end of verse 3. For there, there, where God's people dwell together in unity from the context. That's what he means by there. There where God's people dwell together in unity, the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. What is he talking about there by life forever? We can certainly be talking in an ultimate sense of eternal life. Yes. Ultimately, if you put your faith in Jesus as they're looking forward to the Messiah, you will experience eternal life. But I think that what he's talking about here more specifically is, is the experience of quality of life when we walk together in unity, beloved. When you are experiencing sweet fellowship 
There is the impartation of grace, isn't there? When we are walking in relationship with one another in harmony and love towards one another. I have often experienced this. Walking away from interaction with individuals and spending time with them, experiencing just joy and peace and a sense of of hope that, you know what, I am not alone in the Christian life. They give me hope by their own experience and their own uh, time with the Lord and, and their encouragement that, you know what, ultimately, I am not alone in this Christian battle. I am not alone in this Christian journey. There is blessing when we walk in unity and God wants to bless us, beloved. He wants to give us a little picture of a glimpse of heaven here on this earth. And that is what happens when we spend time with people. You can be struggling in life, but when you know that people love you, other Christians love you, that they're for you, that they're supportive of you in life, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Unity is life-giving. It bears forth the fruit of enduring power in the Christian life, if you will. We're now after the cross. We are locking arms, holding hands together until the finish line here on this earth. And as Christians, this is why we're called to preserve the unity that God has already established and accomplished in Jesus Christ. We want God's blessing, don't we? We want this. Now, listen. Many of us give lip service to this desire for unity. But if we were to survey your life personally, maybe as a family, and if you genuinely yourself pause before the Lord to survey the way that you think and the way that you live personally and with your family, the way that you order your life, the way that you treat other people in the church, the way that you carry out your priorities in life, And what consumes your time? Those aspects of your life and many others tell a very different story about whether you are committed to preserving unity. A very different story. If unity is delightful and unity receives God's blessing, then how might we be people who preserve that unity? What does functional unity look like in the church? Assuming that you are a Christian... And that you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. What does it mean for you to walk or to live or to conduct yourself in unity? What does that mean? I want to give you three areas in the time that we have remaining. These are not exhaustive at all. But these are three that as your pastor, I'm concerned about. Not for all of us. But that I would like for us to really, really be exhorted and challenged to really contemplate deeply about this morning. The first one is this. In our church, gospel unity will be shown by our commitment to fulfilling a common mission or purpose. Our unity to the, in the gospel will be shown by our commitment to fulfilling a common mission or purpose. I've said this before, unity does not just mean the presence of peaceful relationships amongst us, though that certainly is one sense of unity in the church, that there's peace and we're, and we're pursuing making conflicts right. But unity also means, beloved, the pursuit of a common purpose, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The accomplishing and the fulfillment of what we know to be the Great Commission. Some of us have many, many missions in life. Some of us have many purposes that we are living life for, personally and as families. 
And sometimes in practice, those purposes, whether you would never want it to be articulated this way or not, trump the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you make it evident by your life that Jesus' gospel is second tier to you. A unified church champions the cause of Jesus Christ on earth. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask the two or three or four people who know you best on this earth, away from you, I would bring them in and ask them this question. I would ask them, hey, what would you say this person that you know very well champions most in their life? What are they known for? Would those individuals say, you know what, it's all about Christ. And this is what it looks like in their life. But ultimately they are doing this because they want to see the risen, exalted Christ being made much of on this earth. They are committed to making disciples. Would that be said about you in some way, shape, or form? Or would it be, oh, they're really successful. They're really pursuing this particular career. They're really pursuing this particular kind of education. Oh, they love their family. Oh, they love this. Oh, they love their job. Oh, they love this particular college that they're a part of or this university. What would people say about you? That you are about championing the cause of Jesus, the Great Commission on this earth, or about all of those other things? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I am no longer my own. Jesus died for me. He bought me with a price, the price of his blood. I belong to him and I'm called to exalt him on this earth, right? And I recognize, beloved, that that has flesh and meat to it. And for many of us, it looks very different. But oftentimes we focus on that flesh and that meat and it points nothing to the exaltation of Christ. It's all about you, you living for yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died for all. So that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who died and rose again on their behalf. We are no longer to live for our own benefit, beloved. We are to live for Jesus. And let me tell you this right now. Hear me clearly. If you are going to live for Jesus, then you are going to love the bride that Jesus loves, his church. Jesus said... In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is about building his church on this earth, you understand. And we have been left here for one purpose, and that is to make disciples so that Jesus' church is built here on this earth and he's worshipped forever and ever and ever as the risen, exalted Savior of the world. That's why we're here. That's why Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.27, that the one thing that he wants to hear about these Philippian believers is that they are with one soul striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not striving for anything else. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Beloved, a unified church is a great commission church, a next generation church committed to mutually investing themselves into one another. Beginning with evangelism. Preaching so that sinners are converted and they bow the knee to King Jesus. And then growing disciples. If we are a church that is united, that uh, commitment to the Great Commission will only grow and grow and grow and grow. 
right? Secondly, gospel unity that is blessed by God will be exhibited in our cultivating of a gracious culture. Listen again. Gospel unity that is blessed by God will be exhibited in our cultivating of a gracious culture or community. If we are a unified church, then grace will saturate everything and permeate everything that we do in this church. See, we love to preach a gospel of grace. And we love to hear people embracing a gospel of grace. And we trump that and we herald that. The problem is, is that we undo with our lives what we preach with our words. And we don't exhibit and put on display this grace in the way that we interact with one another in our relationships. The gospel is the gospel of grace. It is unmerited. We can't work for it enough. We did nothing to earn God's blessing and favor. God has given us his grace as a gift through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a great sin bearer, went to the cross, took upon our sins upon himself and the wrath for our sins. And we, by faith in Jesus, are saved from our sins, right? God has been gracious to us. None of any aspect of our salvation is because of anything that we've done. It is all by the favor and the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God. All of it. According to the gospel of grace, God loved us and sought us who were living a rebellious, sinful life, not loving Him, in rejection of Him. And instead of wrath, beloved, what did He give us instead of wrath for our sin? He gave us grace, favor, kindness, Loved us, forgiveness, reconciles us to himself by faith in Jesus. And then in the Christian life as his children, he lavishes his grace upon us and his loving discipline for our good and for his glory that we may share in his holiness. He is so good to us, isn't he? And you would think, or one would think, that you and I would, who have been recipients of this amazing grace of God, would then want to be Christ to others in the same way. We would want to exhibit and put that grace on display toward other people. But instead, what do we do? What do we do? We turn right around and are perpetually and habitually and consistently bitter and resentful people. Harbor unforgiveness in our homes. Harbor unforgiveness with other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. We exist in a settled state of broken relationship with other sinners who have been saved by grace, just like you and I. This could be a brother or sister in the church, your spouse, your children, even people out in the world, that there's a readiness on your part as a believer, even with a non-believer, to forgive and to work with them because you know their desperate condition, that they are lost in their sins. So there's a disposition to be gracious to them. That's not how we typically act. Or what do we do when people show weakness or sin? We become critical and judgmental. Your first reflex is to shun people. To protect yourself. To protect your family from other people who are sinners just like you who have been saved by the grace of God. We have to be careful, beloved. What should be our desire? To confront sin? 
to minister to others by lovingly coming alongside of others, helping them be who God has called them to be according to his word, right? That is a gracious approach to people. Listen, if this is you, and this is you characteristically, where you are critical and judgmental, and you treat people as outcasts because of a weakness or some sin in the past, and you cannot get yourself to somehow get past that so that you forgive that person with the same grace and forgiveness that God has extended to you, there is something seriously wrong with you spiritually. Either you are not saved or you are walking in your flesh and you need to get back to the word of God and remind yourself of God's grace in your life so that you become Christ to other people in the same way, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. What is the motivation for forgiveness and for kindness? That God's kindness for you in Christ Jesus. If we have unity in the gospel, beloved, then we will cultivate a gracious culture, you understand. Where forgiveness and confession and reconciliation and restoration are cultivated in our midst. And people, as a result of that engagement of one another, become more and more like Jesus. More holy. Don't be like the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees and Jesus exposing their hypocrisy? In Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, he said that the Pharisees, they tied up heavy burdens and laid them on men's shoulders, but they themselves were unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They laid heavier burdens on people, the Pharisees did, in their own self-righteousness. Beloved, may it never, ever, ever be that you want God to be harder on other people than he is on you. That exposes self-righteousness. And may it never be that you are harder on others than the way your heavenly Father is with you. May it never be true of us, beloved. And if that is you, you need to repent. You need to repent of that and be reminded again of God's grace toward you. Now, I hear some of you right now already silently telling yourselves or, or asking yourselves, but won't people take advantage Won't they sin more if we're gracious? Won't they think it's okay to be unholy if we are being gracious to them? No, they will not do that. You know why they won't do that? Because if they truly understood the grace of God, then they would understand that that grace calls them, Titus 2, 11 through 14, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace saves, grace grace sanctifies, doesn't it? That's what the grace of God does. It is a false dichotomy to think of being gracious as condoning, justifying, or sweeping sin under the rug. I don't care what bad examples you've seen in contemporary evangelicalism in the recent 20 years or whatever of guys who were trumping grace. And me. in the meanwhile, they were essentially saying that we could be libertarians, live it up, because after all, God forgives us. That is a wrong understanding of grace. The problem is not with the, what the Bible says about grace. It's with what we are articulating about grace. Grace saves. Grace sanctifies. Grace is a sustaining grace all the way to the end so that we make it to the finish line, right? Grace from beginning to end. 
People who sinfully throw around grace as if, hey, since God forgives me in Jesus, I can sin when and how I want. I can live this way sinfully because God always loves me, will always forgive me. Listen, a settled attitude like that only reveals that a person is either unsaved or they are walking in the flesh and they need to repent. That's what that reveals. But don't say that the Bible doesn't call us to be gracious toward one another. We are called to be gracious. Thirdly, and finally, gospel unity will be evident in a commitment to growth and holiness. Gospel unity will be evident in a commitment to growth and holiness. Where there exists, beloved, a gracious culture, environment, atmosphere, that fosters holiness. Why? Why is that? Because God's people in a gracious environment feel the freedom to be open, to be transparent, to be honest about their sin, to confess their sins to one another so that real heart issues can be exposed and addressed with the Word of God, right? But if they're secret and they're kept in there and you're guarding your heart, either because you are doing it on your own or because people have made you feel as if you can't open up about your sin because they're not there to help you, then we have a problem. People fall deeper and deeper into sin in those contexts, right? The church, beloved, needs to be a safe environment for people to open up and confess their sins so that we can deal with those things from the Word of God, right? You know what the church needs to be? It needs to be like a, like a, a, a wonderful greenhouse for special plants, where the environment is optimal for the growth of these special plants, where these plants are protected and secure from the, from the climate, where the temperature is just right for those special plants to thrive. That is to be the church, beloved. It is to be that kind of gracious greenhouse so that there's holiness that is fostered so that people grow to be more like Jesus because they're able to deal with their sins and they know that there's a commitment on the part of their brothers and sisters in Christ not to criticize or to judge them, but to actually help them find answers for those sinful issues that they have, solutions to those things. Oh, my desire as your pastor, beloved, is that we would be more of a gracious church like that, where holiness is fostered, where there's a safe environment where people know that they are loved so much that they have a church full of brothers and sisters who want what is best for them, namely that Jesus would be formed in them, that they would become more like Jesus. Isn't that what the ultimate goal is of disciple making? That we would become like Jesus. But where a critical, judgmental, performance-based and perfectionistic environment exists... No one wants to be open about their sin because they don't feel the confidence that they will be helped overcome their sins, but rejected and treated as an outcast. And don't start thinking in your head, well, what about church discipline? I'm not talking about the disclaimers here. If somebody is living in unrepentant sin and they don't want to repent, yes, out of love for them, we bring them before the church after steps. We've talked about that in past years here at Calvary Bible Church. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the ongoing struggles and weaknesses of Christians just like you and I who don't feel that they can open up because of the fact that it's almost as if we are a perfect environment where nobody has any weaknesses. In that environment, beloved, nobody grows, or there's very little growth, right? Very little holiness. Listen, if we want to preserve unity so that we experience delight and joy and the blessing of God, we need to be committed to these kinds of things and many other things. A.W. Tozer has 
the following illustration in his book on the, in the, on the pursuit of God. And he says this, Suppose you were to have 100 concert pianos all needing to be in tune with one another. If you tune the second piano to the first, and the third piano to the second, and the fourth piano to the third, and so on, until you have tuned all 100 pianos accordingly, you will still have discord and disharmony. But if you tuned each piano to the same tuning fork, there would be a different result. Then you would have perfect unity and harmony among the pianos. And his point is this, so it is in the body of Christ. When believers try to tune themselves to one another, it results in disharmony. But when each Christian brings himself into one accord with Jesus Christ, glorious unity results in the body of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Ultimately, beloved, it comes back to us tuning ourselves in accordance with Jesus Christ, right? We should be living to make much of Him. The more that we focus on the risen, exalted Christ in our personal lives and in the ministry of this church, the more unified we will be, beloved. Because it will not be about you and I and our agendas and our preferences or anything else but about His mission here on this earth, right? The early church experienced opposition, martyrdom, persecution, trials, even sin in the church. But what stands out most about the early church is this, that they were in their preaching and lives focused on exalting Jesus Christ, the risen King. That's what we need to do as a church. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Father, for the great unity that you have established amongst Christians because of Jesus Christ. For those who have put our trust in Christ, we are one, and we are called to preserve that unity. Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, help us to be that kind of a church. Help us to be people who promote and foster holiness here in this church and Christ-likeness, because, Lord, we practice the grace of Christ. He was one who was full of grace and truth. Help us to be committed to both love and truth in this church, and that even when we speak the truth, may it be done truly according to Ephesians 4.16, may the truth be spoken in love for one another, because we want to help one another, because we want one another's spiritual success. Help us to have that kind of heart, that kind of love, Father. Do this amongst your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.